This is the show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon, 88.1 FM, WCWP.org. You know, we have really cool guests. We bring them back. So we have an incredibly smart, brilliant guy who has just a a wealth of both medical history, uh, family history, uh, spiritual information. Uh, So Dr. Asabel is the author of many, 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 many things, but most recently and most noted is a a book that we've talked about in a prior show called Flower of God, because some relatives in his ancestral line kind of go back 3,000 years to the ancient temple of Jerusalem and were the spice uh, merchants. And he was telling us uh, very eloquently last time that this was the spice that was used that had some antimicrobial properties to cleanse people before they went into the sacred temple. So he has a long line of medicine running through his very DNA. As a matter of fact, I go back even further than that. Uh, We were just out a couple of weeks ago on the West Coast uh, when our eldest granddaughter, Rebecca, uh, became a bat mitzvah. Mazel tov. Thank you. And on that day, the Torah reading portion contains the beginnings of my family, Oh, we have to hear this. The It was about, about hyssop. So apparently it goes back even further than the Temple of Solomon, uh, back to uh, Moses uh, bringing down the, <laughs> and reco- and uh, telling the scribes uh, the material uh, told to him by Rabbi Shalalem, the Almighty. And so the hyssop portion uh, was part of the uh, Torah reading portion that day. And... There were four Torah readers. Since it was a conservative congregation, we can allow women to uh, participate in uh, reading from the Torah. And so there was my granddaughter, Rebecca, and her mother, my daughter, Dr. Lara Orsabel, my son-in-law, uh, Mr. Jordan, also, and finally my son, Dr. Ian Orsabel, who happened to read the Torah portion about specifically about the hyssop, the azov. Right, which is the plant that we were talking about at the, yeah. the antimicrobial. Our family plant. became Azov Ale at the time of the Temple of Solomon because Azov is hyssop, Ale is God, and so we were the hyssop of God, and we retained the title which became our family name over a period of three millennia. And the only reason why I am known as Dr. A-U-S-U-B-E-L is because in 1775, the province of Galicia in Poland, or had been in Poland, was taken over by Austria, and when my ancestor, Moshe ben Abrum, Moses' son of Abraham, Ezevel, said that that was his name, the Austrian officer said, Aus Ebel, which meant out of evil, is a better name for a Jew. <laughs> so he retained that name, except that the two dots, the umlaut over the second U, was dropped in the United States. Now, how do you know this? I mean, it's you can't Google that. You can't just, you, you know, the... How did you how did you find this out? Because somebody had to be the caretaker of all this great sacred personal family history. Well, there are were many caretakers. In the first place, I was born in a three generational household, 
And my grandfather, rest his soul, who I always called Zayda in Yiddish since he didn't speak any English, uh, would tell me stories, geschichtes, that his grandpa had told him, that the grandpa's grandpa had told him, that forebears had told them. And I was a very bright young child. I was a student of history at an exceptionally early age. And when my grandpa would tell me a story, I would figure out when this story took place. Now, my grandfather was not a scholar. So he couldn't have possibly read all these things in some book. And at one point in time, he told me a story, and I calculated it was done in the 1500s. Now, my grandpa around the corner, my mother's parents lived around the corner, they would also tell me stories since I had I would go around each day as I was walking. Unfortunately, today, you got to guard your children uh, Especially in the against recent the events. monsters yeah. uh, that are potentially out there. But I would travel around the neighborhood, and I'd visit my grandparents around the corner. And one time, my mother's father told me a story handed down through his family. And I said, Zeta, you're talking about the Black Plague. This is 600 years ago. Amazingly enough, an oral history handed down for 600 years was being transmitted to me, who in turn put it into a written history. And so I would record these stories, not because I was planning to write books, I'm at the age of six, who's planning to write a whole collection of books? <laughs> All smart kid. <laughs> but, uh, and then later on, I met my father's cousin, Nathan Orsabel, uh, who is uh, perhaps the most famous historian of the Jewish people living in the 20th century. And Nathan had never written about the family, but he had traced the family while he was doing the work on the history of the Jewish people. He had found information about the family from various people in different parts of the world. And when he was in Turkey, he met a Dr. Abraham Galanta, who had written a multi-volume history of the Jews of Anatolia. I didn't know that there were that many books needed to tell the story of the <laughs> Jews living in Turkey. But in any case, he told him about the evidence of our family in Ephesus at the Temple of Escalapius, which is 2,300 years ago, and then in Sardis, which was 2,400 years ago. And so collecting all this material, I now was able to, and then before he died, Nathan uh, gave me as much of the information as he had about the family, and he was uh, advanced in age, and I was given permission to use any of the material he gave me in writing the family history. So let me ask you a question. You start out, we all start out pretty much in Jerusalem or whatever it is, Eretz, Israel, as they say. How do we end up in places like Turkey and and all these other places, Poland? I mean, especially in those, when you think about it, there was no Amtrak. You know, there was a, right. you know, how do you get so far away? Uh, okay, I'll tell you. Uh, of course, that may take a little longer. It's an uh, hour show. One of the... <laughs> one of the People I write whose story I write about in the Flower of God is William Ausubel Mohar, and so when I did a TV program just recently, Let's plug it, which is where? Oh, the, uh, the Rabbi Rock, okay. and it'll be shown here in Long Island as well as in many other parts of the country. And where would they find it? Well, you can get it on your uh, public access station uh, on the very side. If you will all uh, let me know. Uh, by uh, that you have a public access station in your area, I will be delighted to uh, have the DVDs of the shows that I've done on Rabbi Rock, which are many, 
sent there to be played for the local audience. All right, so I'll tell you what. If anyone out there wants to send an email to Dr. Asabel, you can send it to me and I'll forward it to him. My email here for the show is tcbradiowcwp at yahoo.com. Uh, but you were saying about... William Asabel Mohar, at the beginning of that show, I commented that when he was born early in the 20th century the largest number of Jews in the world were living in Europe. And so his name was William Ausubel Mohar. His mother was an Ausubel, or Ausibel, A-U-S-U-M-A-B-L, and his father was a Mohar. And he was born in Antwerp, Belgium. So you'd say, why in the world were there Jews living in Antwerp, Belgium? They like chocolate. <laughs> and so I told the story of his ancestors on the Mohar side and how they migrated into Europe to arrive in Amsterdam and the Ausibel side, how they had migrated into Europe. Actually, they were the A's of Ailes who had migrated into Europe to, be, to produce his mother's side. Now, on his father's side, they presumably had come from ancient Israel. The largest number of Jews moving into Europe occurred after the final revolt in Judea, which would say roughly, say, 132, 134 in the Common Era. And the Romans had their final solution to this troublesome people who kept revolting and wanting their independence. And their final solution was to remove all the Jews from Judea, their homeland, and take them back to Rome as slaves. And in Rome they would disappear into the general population. After all, there were hundreds of thousands, who knows, maybe even millions of people brought back to Rome as slaves. An Italian living in Italy today, how much of his ancestry is Roman or whatever, and how much of his ancestry is from the various slave groups that were brought back to Rome? And presumably they would disappear like all the other groups and just be a part of the general population. Well, the Jews remained Jews, at least those who remained Jews, stiff-necked, determined, and persisted in their faith. Now, what do slaves like to do? Get the hell away from slavery. <laughs> I mean, what slave likes to be a slave? Well, the Romans had a way of discouraging that. You see, if you were an escaped slave, you ended up getting nailed up to a cross. That was the Roman way of discouraging anyone from opposing them. But a few managed to escape and didn't get nailed up to a cross. And they would flee beyond the pale of the Roman Empire, beyond the Roman Empire. And where was that? That was in the area which today would be called, say, Germany, all the way down to Bohemia. And so one by one and two by two and ten by ten, they fled to these areas. And so they ended up in what would be today be called Germany. Now what happened then was they were, as they say in the Bible, were fruitful and multiplied. And so over a period of hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, and for that matter, the rest of the population was multiplying too. There are a lot more people in the world today than there were 2,000 years ago. But in any case, uh, there were, ended up being several hundred thousand Jews in, a, in an arc from the Rhineland and what today would be called Germany, then it was the Holy Roman Empire, all the way down to Bohemia. Well, in 1095 a Muslim army, a Saracen army, captured Jerusalem. And the Pope in Rome called upon all the Christians in Europe to mount a crusade to drive these people out of the Holy Land. 
And so the central collecting point for the Crusaders was in the Rhineland of what today we would call Germany. Now, there may have been a couple of people who were interested in rescuing the Homie Land. Uh, there were far more who turned out to be the biggest bunch of crooks, thieves, murderers in all of Europe. This was called the Peasants' Crusade. So they gathered in this Rhineland, and now listen, if they go down to the Holy Land, those Saracen soldiers are very skilled. You'll probably end up dead. On the other hand, there were thousands and thousands of Jews living in the Rhineland of Germany. And these people had nothing to do with the Muslims capturing Jerusalem, but they are, as is commonly called, the Christ killers. And so, kill the Jewish men, rape the Jewish women, and take all their goods and go home with your booty, and you don't even have to go to the Holy Land, and you get a blessing, no punishment. And so thousands of Jews were being slaughtered. Well, what does a common-sense individual do if he sees his brethren being slaughtered? You move on out of town. You get the <laughs> hell out of town. And so they fled to the kingdom of Poland, which was much larger than the Poland we think of today. It included Lithuania, Latvia, Belarus, which some people would call White Russia, much of the Ukraine, and much of Romania. And they were welcomed, not because the Polish kings had great sympathy for the Jews or loved Jews, no, because they brought with them skills that were lacking, A. B, they paid taxes. You see, the nobility owned all the land, and they didn't pay taxes. So how's a king going to get money to run a country? The Jews would move into the towns and cities and villages, and they would work, and they were artisans and small businessmen, and they were squeezed for taxes. You didn't pay your taxes, you ended up dead. So they became the milk cow of the Polish kings. And in fruitful in Poland, as we say, they were fruitful and multiplied again. And by the 18th century, there were already a couple of million Jews living in Poland. Well, Were they concentrated in certain areas? No, no, they were spread all over Poland. Now, what happened then was that Poland's three neighbors, Russia, Prussia, and Austria, decided to divide up Poland. And so Poland temporarily ceased to exist. The largest chunk ended up under Russian rule. And so now suddenly you had a couple of million Jews living under Russian rule. Now, mind you, the Russian czars were virulently anti-Semitic. They were so anti-Semitic that when they were called the Dukes of Moskva, they issued an edict that any Jew who set foot on holy Russian soil would be executed on the day of his arrival. Well, these Jews suddenly were part of this large conquered territory, so this was classified as the Pale of Russia, the areas where Jews would be permitted to live in ghettos, of course, but they were not permitted to enter holy central Russia like Moscow or St. Petersburg. In any case, the Mohars um, were living in this area. This Now this Russia, had, which had been taken over from Poland. Now, my Azabel ancestors came by a different route. Uh, we were a spice family for the Temple of Solomon. We ended up going into Babylonian exile, not because we had a desire to go to Babylon, but because they took us out into Babylon. Well, 60 years later, Ezra, the prophet Ezra, uh, convinced the, uh, them to let the Jews back into 
Israel, uh, or actually into Judea, uh, but not all the Jews left. You know, some already another generation, they've gotten used to living in Babylon, wasn't so bad, in this diaspora, so to speak. So they remained in Babylon, which was then conquered by Persia, and so now they were living under Persian rule. And one of my ancestors ended up as an emissary for the King Cyrus of Persia to the Lydian Empire, which is located in Anatolia, which today would be called Turkey. There were no Turks living in Turkey then. They were living in Central Asia. There were other peoples living in that area at that time. And so they were in the city of Sardis, and then from Sardis to Ephesus. I don't want to keep you here all night. Uh, and uh, at the Temple of uh, Escalapius, at, at, at the Temple of Escalapius, the beginnings of medicine, the Kedusha sign, the two snakes and the two sticks. And finally, in the uh, 16th century, my ancestor, Dr. David Azevedo, was considered the most important physician in the Eastern world, and he accompanied Suleiman the Magnificent, the Ottoman Sultan who conquered all of Europe up to Vienna. After the death of Suleiman, he decided to remain in Europe and settled in Budapest. hundred years later, the family fled wisely because the city was conquered, captured by a Christian army. And the first thing they did was to annihilate the Jews. Why? As you can see from my other comments, <laughs> it's no one needed good excuses to kill Jews. <laughs> it's, it's an old movie. <laughs> so, they fled, so they fled to the kingdom of Poland, and they ended up in the province of Galicia, which now, with the division of Poland, ended up under Austrian rule. Now, in the uh, in 1880, uh, the Tsar Alexander II was assassinated, and Tsar Alexander III had as his mentor, a man by the name of Papi Dershnetsev, who advised the Tsar that the reason why your, your father was assassinated was because he was too liberal. He liberated serfs. This is ridiculous, wasting good property. And uh, even allowed some Jews unofficially to live in St. Petersburg. And so the motto of the new Tsar was one Tsar, one Russia, one religion, and the first to feel the wrath of this would be the Jews. And so now you had the so-called Great Pogrom. Why do you call it the Great Pogrom? Because they killed more Jews than they killed in any previous Pogrom. Pogroms being the periodic slaughters of Jews. So the Mohars, as well as hundreds of thousands, in fact millions of Jews, were fleeing Russia. Now what happened was, as they fled, they had to flee through some other countries. And so many fled through Galicia, and what happened then was Galician Jews, who weren't in as bad a strait as the Russian Jews, uh, hearing these stories that these uh, people fleeing Russia were telling about people they had heard from in the United States that there was a better country, that you could live like a decent human being there, they also started to move. Now, they were moving westward, but not all of them got all the way to the United States. What happened is occasionally some Jews... Um, found it relatively hospitable in Western Europe and stopped there. So the Mohars stopped in Antwerp, and Anausabel stopped in Antwerp. And so a Mohar met Anausabel, hence the beginnings of the uh, of Willie Ausable Mohar's beginnings. And in that sense, you can get a sense of how the Jews came into Europe. Exactly. Now, that's kind of interesting. Now, in all the... We have like a break coming up in about two minutes. But before then... What were what were the different occupations of your ancestors, and were they pretty similar to what the occupations were of the general Jewish populations of those days, or were you different because you guys were the spice merchants and you seemed to have some pretty good intellect and uh, other things and medicine and knowledge and wisdom on your side? 
uh, well, I would say that it would seem that something in my genetic pool had some reasonable amount of intellect, because if you figure out the various orcibos living in the United States today, uh, which we did on on Google before yeah. we got uh, before we started the show, you, you found a relatively large number for a small number of people uh, in distinguished positions from an intellectual point of view. Uh, no couple, schleps. No, no. Well, I don't know if there are no schleps, but the. Uh, it would be a very unusual child uh, in the Orsiville family that didn't get a, a, uh, a uh, of course, a bachelor's degree and a doctorate and a master's degree and uh, had not accomplished significantly, if, uh, assuming he's not one of the uh, children just born, uh, in the world. Uh, a lot of them were in medicine and in the sciences. Exceptionally large number. Why? Theories. Theories? Uh, uh, first of all, the genetic pool. Uh, there are certain... Uh, I mean, some people have the potential to become great athletes, to the best of my knowledge, and none of the Orsibles has become a great athlete. Uh, however, intellectually, they've, they've achieved substantially. It would be an unusual Orsible, probably, that would have an IQ below 125 or 30. Not 30, but 100. No, 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 I got you, I got you. I'm just looking at the time here because in 23 seconds we're going to take a, a quick break. So we'll be right back. You are listening to Taking Care of Business on WCWP 88.1. Richard Solomon, your host. Hi, this is Anastasia Zeltos from Athens, Greece, and we listen to Richard Solomon on our computers, and we love it. All right, and we're back. Thank you for listening to Taking Care of Business 88.1 FM, Richard Solomon, tcbradio.com, wcwp.org. I am with a brilliant guest, and I am uh, most honored to have uh, him be here today, taking time to be with us this, with this fine morning, Dr. Herbert Ausubel, and uh, historian, uh, amongst other things, academic, uh, doctor, uh, related to uh, many, many Nobel uh, Prize uh, you know, winners, Nobel Prize nominees. Nominees. All right. Hey, let's just, you know. So, so tell us about a couple of the, the Nobel Prize crowd and, and maybe some people in the Schmata business. Well, you see, the Schmata business, you had to be able to do what you were permitted to do or were you offered the opportunity to do. And my father, for example, was a brilliant individual. He had gone to the first, he was in the first class of the Baron de Heer School. Uh, back in Austria. At the turn of the 20th century, a certain Baron de Hirsch, who was a Viennese Jewish nobleman, felt that Jewish children were not being prepared for the 20th century. You see, what happened was as follows. Orthodox Jewish boys, and virtually all the Jews in the shtetls were, were Orthodox, would go to Cheda, the Hebrew school, and then on to the yeshiva if they had the intellectual capability and their families could afford it. Jewish girls got no education at all other than to learn how to cook and clean and to raise children, which would be their obligation in life. Now, that was hardly background that would prepare you for the 20th century in terms of the advances. So Baron de Hirsch funded schools that would follow Jewish religious law in terms of no classes on the Sabbath or on Jewish holidays so the Jewish boys could attend it, and that they would be also taught mathematics, science, philosophy, history. 
so that they would get a broad-spectrum education to enter the 20th century. Now, my father entered this class, and he was the most brilliant student in the first class to enter the school. And the anticipation of his mother was that he would go to the University of Vienna. Well, along came World War I, and there's a little bit of a war to be fought, so forget about it. And after the war, the family had fled to Vienna, and so they needed money to survive. And so my father ended up working in shoes as well as becoming a playwright for the Yiddish stage as well as the German stage. So he could achieve as much as was possible. By the time he had gotten to the United States, after the first anti-Semitic riots in Austria and in Germany in, in 1921, he had to then work and save and bring over his parents, and by that time he was getting a little older, and it was time to get married and have a family, not to mention that he was the major supporter of his parents and his younger siblings. And so he could never go to college and get his master's and doctor of philosophy degrees, etc. So this is, and this is a bright individual. So in the old world, most were deprived of the opportunity to have that more advanced education. Once in the United States, it was a different ball game. And for example, uh, Kalman Orsabel left Galicia, and as I described the Mohars, he never got as far as America. He settled in Stuttgart in Germany, which he found hospitable. So his son Siegfried uh, ended up um, making underwear, producing underwear. Uh, his children and grandchildren in the United States are all accomplished. So it's a different ball game once they had the opportunity. And once Orsabels had the opportunity in the United States, a wonderful country, uh, they certainly went on to achieve. Now, Frederick Orsabel, for example, is considered the father of genetic engineering, taking a gene from one creature or one plant and putting it into another plant or another individual. And, for example, if you take... First, you have to find which gene it is that enables a plant to survive at 30 degrees below freezing. Find that in some plant that grows in the Arctic. And then transplant it into a corn seed growing in Iowa. And you could actually produce a strain of corn that could survive at 30 degrees below freezing. Just think if you could have all the oranges, not have to worry about being killed in the frost uh, in Florida. You wouldn't have to have a sudden rise in the cost of orange juice, and it would be a lot a lot better. Now, of course, there are some environmentalists who say, ho, 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 you're doing a, a genetically engineered plant. It might give you cancer or God knows what. And so there's a great deal of resistance to introducing something found by genetic engineering. But I, I ask you this. Take a poor soul suffering from sickle cell anemia. That poor soul is virtually guaranteed to die at an early age and to have suffered terribly during his or her lifespan. Now just think if you could take a hemoglobin A gene and put it into the precursors, the stem cells of an individual with the sickle cell anemia and then to be able to produce, as a result, hemoglobin SA, which would give that person the equivalent of a sickle cell trait. And a sickle cell trait, you could live a normal lifespan uh, and be a healthy human being. Tell me, who in his wildest delusion 
would stop that from happening? Well, nobody, because that's taking care of an individual, whereas something that's something that people are eating widespread, and there's a there's a difference between, at least my opinion, that analogy, because if you could take one person and fix something within them and give them a better quality of life, that's fine. But, you know, with crops, we don't really know, you know, if you take a gene from a salmon, because I've heard about this, you take a gene from a salmon, because they don't freeze or they're cold water, you know, they're cold-blooded, mm-hmm. and you stick that in a... I forgot what it was, but in, in something, uh, I don't think it was corn, they had another example, uh, so that the fruit, I guess maybe orange or so, it wouldn't freeze. Do you really want salmon genes in your citrus crop? Because <laughs> you know, at some point, uh, then what happens is the seeds of that contaminate all the other seeds, and then it'd be, you can't contain it. Whereas if you're playing genetically with people, it's pretty much limited. The introduction is limited to the one person that you're playing with, and generally you'd be doing that to either improve them or reverse something very, very bad. You know, I'm not so much worried about when they say, well, you know, what's the next thing that's going to happen? You're going to want only people who are six feet tall and blue-eyed, <laughs> but I'm not worried about that because we're billions of years from, <laughs> from, from that, you know, at least you know, conceptually. But let me ask you, you've done, I want to talk about what you have done in terms of medicine because you seem to have a whole, aside from all the great book writing and all the other stuff, you seem to have a lot of great knowledge about you know, medicine and health and taking care of people. I know that we've talked a little bit about uh, eating and lifestyle. To talk, let's talk a little bit about that. What could, what could people like me who need a little bit of weight, lose a little bit of weight? Because um, that's why I'm on radio as opposed to TV. <laughs> what can we do to sort of be healthier and, and live a better existence? What have you seen in your patient populations and all this other good stuff? Okay. There are three things in general that you could do that would probably increase life expectancy a minimum of 15 years with quality. Number one, obviously, is to stop smoking or to never smoke. Number two is to keep your blood pressure down below 120 over 80. That wasn't always the case in terms of our understanding. Dr. Paul Dudley White, in his textbook in 1930, and he was considered the leading cardiologist in the world, said you never lower the blood pressure of someone of advanced age because blood pressure rise is a necessary response to the sclerosis of blood vessels, and if you lower his pressure, you're going to kill the person. Of course, we know better than that now. So we now know keeping your blood pressure down is very important. As a matter of fact, a person with 100, on the, av- the average person with 115 over 75 blood pressure is only half as likely to die of a heart attack as a person with a 135 over 80. That's an enormous difference. So I believe in keeping your blood pressure down. I also believe that you should start doing that early because when you take a person who is 80 years of age and, and has already severe sclerotic vessels, you can't do that as easily because when you lower the lower pressure, this diastolic pressure, below 60, the inflow into the coronary arteries takes place during diastole, and so that person may suddenly start getting chest pain. So I am a strong believer in starting to do that earlier in life. Obviously, you can't make yourself 20 when you're 60, but you do the best you can at any age group. And the third thing is your cholesterol. You want to keep your LDL cholesterol down below 70, in my judgment. Now, that is not the standard. 
in the United States. Uh, we give numbers for if you have so many risks and if you have so many risks, you and, if, and they now call it acceptable as an alternative if you have known coronary heart disease or coronary heart disease equivalent to get your, di- your, get your LDL down below 70. Of course, I was taught by people like Dr. Elliot Jocelyn as you think out of the box, you think of what can we do to make things better. And the reason why I say that we should keep the LDL below 70 is as follows. A primitive man had a very low LDL. So you say, how the heck do I know that? Because they had no bread and they were running around eating dinosaurs. <laughs> no, they weren't eating too many dinosaurs because the dinosaurs are bigger than they and the animals usually could run faster than they. So the way they could get a meat meal is if some poor animal broke his leg so that they could hit it with a club. As a result, and they also were not even farmers yet. And so they had to go walking 20, 30, 40, 50 miles a day looking for a berry to eat. Now, when you have the best physical fitness program that Jack LaLanne could have ever dreamed of and very little food, your LDL is down. Now, your LDL when you're born is 30 to 35. We know that scientifically. By the time you're 10, if, God forbid, you were killed in an automobile accident, the average LDL at that time is 70, assuming you didn't become a butterball by the age of 10. By the time you're 7, you will already see in most people lipid streaks in the blood vessel wall. means fat has already been getting across into the artery wall at an LDL of 70. Now, the first study showing a reduction in plaque by intravascular ultrasound, where you can see what's going on in the vessel in a living person, first study showing a reduction in plaque in the vessel wall was the asteroid study, where they got the average LDL down to 61. That was the first time someone had done a study in which they actually reduced plaque in the vessel wall. So I say, get your LDL down below 70. And that's true for everyone. You say, well, but the Framingham score says that you don't have to do that. And you're talking to one of the few people who's still around who was involved in the original Framingham study. And what we did is we saved blood on, because we didn't have LDL measurements and so forth in 1950. We saved blood so we could froze it, so we could test it later on. So we now know what the LDLs were on these people in 1950. In any case, we now know that people are dying of heart diseases, of course, we knew then. But what's more important is that the ones who had LDLs down below 70 were living longer. You say, but the Framingham score. Well, the Framingham score is based upon your expectancy of dying of a heart attack or a stroke in the next 10 years. How comforting it is it to a 30-year-old fellow who says, well, you have a low risk of getting a heart attack in the next 10 years, so why bother? He'd like to live 70 or 80 or 90 years. And so it is much easier to keep the fat out of the vessel wall than to start trying to drag it out of the vessel wall. And so I believe in starting as early as possible, keeping that LDL down below 70. And I have patients in my practice 
I can't scientifically prove it because I have to do an odds and evens study on 10,000 people, and I don't have that many people that I'm following for the next 50 years. So those three things would lower you. So let me ask you two follow-up questions. How do you lower your blood pressure, and then how do you get your LDL to be lower? What are the, what are the things that we can do on a day-to-day basis to, okay. to actually get those things to happen? Well, in the first place, of course, diet and lifestyle. It is interesting that population groups that live in areas where they get very low sodium intake have an enormously lower rate of heart attacks than population groups, even of the same genes, who are living in areas where they have a high salt intake. Uh, For example, they found virtually no coronary heart disease in people living in, Indians living in the Amazon, in certain areas where there was extremely low sodium in the soil, and these people were living a a hunter-gatherer existence. Whatever they could get locally is what they ate. And so they weren't getting all that wonderful imported food with all the salt dumped in. Now, Americans, as well as Europeans, are sadly trained from childhood to take in a lot of salt. They put a lot of salt in the baby foods. The babies know nothing about salt. Why do they do that? Because mommy will taste it and say, it tastes like garbage. And so they'll market it by putting a big ton of salt in the food. So the babies get used to, from infancy, into expecting salt in the food. Now, they did a study, interestingly enough, in some of the South Sea Islands. Uh, The Polynesians, who are basically genetically uh, similar people, and islands that had very low sodium in the soil had a much lower rate of heart attacks, from careful studies done, than islands that had a high sodium content in the soil. Bear in mind, all of these peoples for the most part, did not import any food, whatever they grew locally. So low salt is unquestionably, and of course all the studies have shown, low salt unquestionably will help reduce blood pressure. In addition, of course, staying slim will help reduce blood pressure. So we have there two key factors in terms of our diet and lifestyle. Uh, As a matter of fact, when my wife and I go to the supermarket, we have to pay extra to get tuna fish with the salt not being added. Why I should have to pay more for them not dumping a pile of salt in my food remains to be seen, but I'm willing to spend an extra couple of pennies <laughs> to have the uh, low-sodium intake. And I suggest, uh, soy sauce is terrible. I mean, that's, that's, that's like drinking pure salt. The need of the human body is for about a gram of salt a day. The average American is taking in more than 12 grams a day. Wow. So it's helping raises pressure. Now, in terms of the LDL, of course, diet and lifestyle. But let's face it, we're living in America, and we're not going to go back to being primitive man, walking 50 miles a day looking for a, a morsel of food or waiting until we can hit an animal on the head <laughs> with a club before we'd have a piece of meat to eat. So um, Americans, certainly diet and lifestyle is absolutely important. And so... Um, I, I have prepared, which I gave give to my patients at the time of their annual checkup, a 26-page uh, detailed discussion. But the simple things to remember are eight fruits and vegetables a day and fish are the keys to uh, lowering LDL cholesterol. In addition to that, uh, a substantial number of people will benefit uh, from taking various medications to lower cholesterol, uh, particularly the LDL cholesterol. 
The LDL is so-called bad cholesterol. And uh, so the, the medications that can be employed, especially when they're up, oh, you say, I don't have a, I've never had a heart attack. Good, and you'd like to stay that way. <laughs> so lowering LDL cholesterol, ask your doctor what your LDL cholesterol is, rather than just saying, oh, it's good. Whatever that means means. Well, I, I actually know what mine is, but we're on, we're on the air. But it's it, it could be better. Is all I could say. <laughs> that, that I could tell you. So there there are the three the three key ingredients. What about Staying slim? What about triglycerides? Triglycerides are important because triglycerides are. There's no triglyceride floating around in your bloodstream per se. It is part of the uh, VLDL. Very you see. The cholesterol is produced as VL, very low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, which is a very large molecule, and then broken down to LDL cholesterol. And VLDL cholesterol is also undesirable, uh, while it's not the... And as a matter of fact, people who have a very high VLDL, their LDL is what we call small-dense. In other words, there are many more particles for the given weight of LDL cholesterol, for the given number of uh, milligrams of LDL cholesterol, it is far more atherogenic. So triglycerides, absolutely important. Uh, it is, is a, the second level tier in terms of the LDL being the most common one that you're attacking and the VLDL next. And thirdly, HDL. HDL you want to be higher uh, because HDL is what sucks the cholesterol out of the blood vessel wall, simplistically speaking, and bringing it back into the circulation to get rid of it. So ideally, you want to have a high HDL, a low LDL, and a low triglyceride. Diet and lifestyle are, are extremely important, but when they're way up, uh, there are various drugs like uh, niacin and uh, um, the uh, the uh, other uh, other classes of agents, uh, Tricor, uh, Trilipix, uh, Fibrocon, and so forth, which can be employed to lower the triglycerides. Okay. Now, in terms of diet and exercise, the diet that you like, you like basically your fruits and vegetables and some fish. Fruits and vegetables and fish and low quantity. If you're going to take rice, make sure it's brown rice. You know how they make white rice from brown rice? Yeah, they strip the brown. They strip the brown. They, they strip, strip the, all the good stuff. The good stuff and is give you a pure <laughs> carbohydrate. Right, which is why after you have a Chinese meal, sometimes you're actually really hungry because yeah. you have a gigantic pile of white rice, and that just you know you that I know that I know. Yeah. Interestingly enough, in the Chinese restaurant, very often they'll charge me extra to get brown rice. <laughs> why they charge me extra? I didn't have to go through the process. Of of stripping off the brown uh, the 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 vitamins and minerals, but the soy sauce is free. <laughs> well, soy sauce is free, and I don't touch it. <laughs> okay, so um, what uh, we're we're kind of like really running running blazing through here. What future projects are we going to be looking to talk to you about in future radio shows? I know you have so many things going on, and you travel extensively, and you're you know, involved in all these things and you're doing interviews and you're kind enough to grace us with your knowledge and wisdom here today. But what's, what, what should we do when we're looking in the future to see what endeavors you're up to? Well, I was taught by a number of brilliant people under whom I trained to think out of the box. If we go under the assumption that what we know today and what is, quotes been proven 
is all that we should do, we would miss the boat. My father, rest his soul, suffered from heartburn. That's what they called it in those days, and they told him to consume sweet cream. Of course, my father died of a heart attack at an age substantially less than I am now. So I tried to learn from what misfortune had occurred. And so I was very early in my career a preacher and follower of lowering cholesterol numbers. His cholesterol was called, was 280 in those days. They didn't test LDL and HDL because they didn't they hadn't discovered such a test. That was called normal because normal was up to 300. That's a crack of baloney today. Now, I didn't wait until it was proven by a study that I should keep my LDL down significantly. Nevertheless, I did so, and to the best of my knowledge on cardiac catheterization, I have 100% clean coronary artery disease past the age of 75. I don't think that's by accident. That's by effort. So think out of the box as to what can be doing in the future. Now, there's always the inherent danger of someone introducing something that turns out to be a total disaster to society. So you have to have some sort of mechanism of judging A versus B. In 1985, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, they identified something called granulocyte colony stimulating factor. At that time... Now, granulocyte colony stimulating factor would stimulate a rise in your white blood cell count, the granulocytes. Uh, Dr. Asimov, you were telling me a little bit about uh, some study at Sloan Kettering with white blood cell so, promoter things. Right, granulocyte colony stimulating factor. So at that time, there was a patient who was a relative of mine who couldn't get her chemotherapy because the white cells would get wiped out. So there's no point in trying to treat her when you, if you're going to kill the patient with the treatment. I had proposed using the granulocyte colony stimulating factor on her as a means of being able to give adequate chemotherapy. In any case, uh, the chief of uh, cancer research at the hospital, who happened to be a good friend of mine from back at Harvard Medical School, uh, thought it was a good idea, but he better check with the government authorities, and they told him if we pull a stunt like that that hadn't been tested even on a mouse, we'll end up in jail, and needless to say, our licenses will be revoked. So that resulted in a whole series of studies, which eventually ended up with approval for this drug, which is now one of the standards uh, in the treatment of patients who are getting drugs which will depress the white blood cell count. But I'll tell you this much. The governmental authorities, to this day, still give me a headache when I'm using that to help prevent uh, the person from dying of a, a malady. They want me to wait until the malady is full-blown before I will give them the therapy. To me, I consider that a crock of nonsense. Uh, and so Flower of God uh, has been the product of 32 years of work, and I have five more volumes to follow that, assuming the good Lord keeps me in good spirits and in good health uh, so that I can finish uh, the, the entire six-book series. Well, I look forward to reading all of those books, and you are invited for each and every book to do a show on each and every book right here. All right, so if you want to get in touch with the good doctor, you can always uh, send me an email, and I'll be glad to forward it, tcbradiowcwp at yahoo.com. And, of course, flowerofgod at amazon.com. 
Oh, wow. Time flies when you're having fun. Doctor, thank you for your wisdom. We'll My see. pleasure. We'll see you in a week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Whoa.